What do you know about the Old Testament? Is it a group of ancient stories, myths, and fables? Has it been copied so many times that it's lost all original truth it had? If these statements are true, why do we call it God's Word? Hi, I'm Yvonne Friend with Bible 805, where I make it easy for you to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We're going to answer these statements in a way that I think is going to really encourage you in our lesson today entitled, How We Got the Old Testament and Why We Can Trust It as the Word of God. What is the Old Testament? It's the first 39 books of the total 66 books that make up the Bible. Now, although we use the term books, and they are separate compositions that were written at various times, they're all part of one book with one author. And please see the lesson on why the Bible's like a novel that goes into this in more detail. That's available on www.bible805.com. Our plan for today is we're going to look at how we got it, the history of when it was written, and how it was preserved. We'll also look at why we can trust it with lessons from archaeology and history. Now, though it was inspired by God, as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, where it says all scripture was inspired by God, biblical writers used primary sources, written sources, not just legends and made-up stories, just like any historian would. The Bible itself talks about this in many places. And here's an example in Chronicles where it says, For the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, they are written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer, together with details of his reign and power and the circumstances that surrounded him and Israel and the kingdoms of all the other lands. Statements similar to this are frequently repeated throughout not only actually the historical books, but the entire Old Testament, the prophetic books and different things. They will talk about different sources being consulted for what was written. For Moses, there were most likely many written records that he he was able to access, and archaeological finds, including the Amara tablets, show us that this was a time when people wrote down many, many things. And then, of course, when someone was sitting down to write a history, as Moses did, as Ezra did later, they consulted these sources. But in addition to the written resources, we have oral history. Now, oral history is very, very powerful. When historians evaluate the validity of written documents, they like to look back and see, well, what was the source for them? Did someone actually see what happened or could it be trusted through a coming down through a reliable oral history source? Now, the power of this is shown in the difference that it makes if someone actually saw the events that took place. Now, in my own experience with this, I had an adopted grandfather, we called him Papo, and he was there at D-Day, and he was one of the gentlemen that hit the beach at D-Day, and we've all seen the pictures, we've heard the accounts, but when he told me the story of how the men, before they left, they knew they, they didn't know what they were going into, but they knew they probably wouldn't make it back, so they emptied out their pockets, all their money, 
their change, their whatever they could give away, and they gave it away to the street urchins there on the docks as they were boarding the ships. That was such a powerful story to me and something that came from an eyewitness. And he also talked about how they, when they hit the beach, if the boats didn't come in close enough, how many of the men drowned who were not able to make it to shore. And so his oral history of it helped me understand D-Day far better than I had previously. Now, how does this apply to the Bible? Well, there is a very interesting chart, and you can download it on Bible 805, but I'll be able to describe it to you that talks about how the long lifespans of people in the Old Testament, how significant they were for passing on the truth of the history of it. Because Adam, listen quite carefully, was still alive when Noah's father was born. In other words, Methuselah, who would have spoken to Adam, was alive when Noah was growing up. And I sometimes say, and you think your grandfather had great stories. Can you imagine he could hear stories from someone who knew the very first man created? So we have this repetition going down throughout the ages from actual eyewitnesses. Then Shem, Noah's son, was alive when Abraham was born. Terah, his father, would have been able to speak to him. Oral history passed on all of the truth of the different things that happened, as well as the written documents. And both of these contributed to the validity of the history that was later written. Here is the pattern that was repeated then when it came time to write things down. In addition to all these resources that Moses had, God would speak to Moses and he told him to share verbally his message and then to write it down. In Exodus 24.3 it says, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. This pattern is repeated throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, where God speaks to Moses, he communicates the message to the people, he writes it down, and then the written materials were then carefully preserved by the Levitical priests. And we assume that this writing of the Pentateuch took place probably over that entire 40-year span that the people were wandering in the desert. It talks about how Moses had a special tent that he would go into, and then it says in Exodus 33:11 that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. I have another chart for you. I'm going to go over it with you, but it shows then the process of how the entire Old Testament was written. It was actually written in three different groupings, and Second Peter 1.21 summarizes the process where it says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to go through each author in future lessons where we go through the entire Bible, but briefly here is an overview of the three sections that the Bible, the Old Testament was written in. Again, the pattern, an individual was identified as a prophet from God, that person spoke 
and what they said was recorded and carefully kept. Okay, up here we have the in first section. This is where Moses writes the Pentateuch. He is the writer of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Job. And all of the dating of Job, when we talk about that book, some very fascinating things, but you're going to have to wait till that lesson to hear them. Then during this same uh, period or just following that period of time Joshua writes the end of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua and the original manuscripts here were written in Hebrew then the second period this is 1057 to 587 this is the time that Israel just after they came out of Egypt until they go into the Babylonian captivity during this time Samuel writes Judges Ruth and 1st Samuel David writes part of Psalms and the rest was written by a variety of people and again in a future lesson we'll talk about that Solomon writes Ecclesiastes Song of Solomon and some of the Proverbs and then the various prophets at that time included Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And then also written during this time, and we're not sure exactly who wrote them. Um, different chroniclers have been listed, but 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations were written. Now we do believe that Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, wrote his book, Jeremiah wrote his, and he wrote the book of Lamentations. Then Israel goes into the Babylonian captivity, but of course God is not finished speaking to them. From approximately 520 to 460, Daniel and Ezekiel wrote during the captivity in Babylon, and then upon the return to the land, Ezra and Nehemiah recorded what happened, and then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi prophesied to the exiles who returned and wrote their messages. Then the final book in the Old Testament is in the book of Malachi, but it's where the prophet Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles to retell the story of God's people from creation until they're back in the land. Now, how was this assembled? On the manuscript history, we don't have any original manuscripts of the Old Testament, but tradition and history tells us that all of the books, again, they were preserved very carefully throughout the years by the Levitical priests. And then at the time of the return from the captivity, Ezra was in charge of a group called the Great Assembly, and or the Great Synagogue, different names, but the same organization. And tradition says that he was the one with this group that assembled and decided these are the final books that will be in the Old Testament. We'll talk about exactly why it's these books and only these books later. But the question that comes up now is how do we know that what we have is the same as what they wrote? At the end of the Old Testament, again, Ezra collected these books as part of the Great Assembly, the Great Synagogue. And Jewish tradition does verify for us that they spent great time and great care in how they would copy them, how they would keep them. They would count the number of letters in a line, and you had to have them be exactly the same from manuscript to manuscript. And so we know that there was um, great care, great concern that they be copied exactly as they were. One of the best summaries of the importance of and the care for the Old Testament scriptures comes 
from Josephus. Now, he's the one who wrote the histories of the Jews, where we know how the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. We know about the early church. We know just a lot of things from Josephus. But he also wrote a work called Contra Appion, or Against Appion, who was maligning the Jewish scriptures. And here is a quote from um, his work, where he said, For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another, as the Greeks have, but only 22 books. Now, it, that actually comes out to the same number as the 39 in our Old Testament. He just numbered them differently. First uh, and Second Chronicles are one book, and, you know, there's, there's other groupings, but it's the same books. These books contain the record of all the past times, which are justly believed to be divine. During so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as to either add anything to them, to take anything from them, or to make any change in them. But it is become natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem these books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them and if occasion be willingly to die for them. Now, in addition to Josephus' words, we also have the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are one of the best ways to answer the question, well, haven't the biblical documents changed over the years? We have that tradition of very careful copying of manuscripts, the testimony of Josephus, but concrete proof of this came with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were hidden in the caves of Qumran prior to 70 AD. Now, we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were buried in these caves prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's why they hid them there. They knew that this conquering army was coming, and so they hid all their documents in these caves. They were not discovered until about 2,000 years later, 1949. And when scholars discovered them, unrolled them, were able to analyze them, they were absolutely astounded because the Old Testament documents that we found with the Dead Sea Scrolls are virtually identical to the manuscripts that we have today. There are a few, you know, uh, well, not typographical, but uh, little grammatical errors and a few punctuation changes and things like that. But 99.9% of the documents are exactly the same, showing that no, the scriptures haven't changed. And any church, the Mormon church does this, or a commentator that says, oh, the Bible's changed so many times, it's been copied and copied and copied, it's no longer the same thing. That's simply incorrect. Now, you don't have to believe that the Old Testament is the Word of God, but you also cannot deny the reliability of the primary documents that make it up. The documents we have today were the documents that they had back in Old Testament times. You don't have to believe in them. You don't have to say God wrote them. But to be credible intellectually, you cannot deny how there has been this unbroken line of documents from the earliest days. But there's more. <laughs> now, we have many other reasons why the Christian Bible is unique among all other scriptures and how we can trust it. And a lot of that has to do with how 
we have what I call historical anchors in these books. We did a study in the past, and again, this is on Bible 805, where we looked at the religious documents in the Hindu religion, in the Buddhist religion, the Mormon religion, and Islam, and compared them with the Christian Bible. And the messages, of course, of all these religions are, are very different, but they not only contradict each other in their belief systems, but their scriptures do not have historical anchors. Now, the Hindus and the Buddhists, they're very upfront about it. They go, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, our, our religions comes from traditions and legends and fables. And, you know, we can't pinpoint exactly where anything happened. And they don't base their, their system on that. Uh, the Mormon church is very different. They have the Book of Mormon theoretically took place in uh, some places that have never been identified geographically. And the Christian Bible, there is a reason that we have maps. <laughs> we have maps because our story is based on true history that happened in true places. Here is one, just one example of how the Bible was written with identifiable historical geographical settings. And this has to do with not only the proof of the text itself, but it helps you really understand the whole message of the text and some of the nuances of what the Bible teaches us. The one example that we're going to talk about right now is about how Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, most people have actually seen where Abraham was born, but they didn't really realize what they were looking at. And that is, and again, if you get a chance to look at the video, I've got all kinds of great pictures that illustrate this, but that is a picture that many people saw during the Middle Eastern Wars where there's all these soldiers standing on this ancient pyramid. That actually is a reconstruction over the, the mound that was discovered in Ur of the Chaldees that Abraham came out of. Now, the pictures have been shown across the entire world, and it was actually, that whole area is one of the greatest archaeological discoveries. But before we get into that, one of the things in um, really researching this and researching this archaeological find that totally changed my view of the story of Abraham is that I thought that Abraham left a Middle Eastern area and lifestyle very similar to what he was going to, you know, sort of one pastoral place, you know, taking sheep around and goats and living in tents and all that kind of stuff. And then he just went to another one. I didn't really think anything of it until I studied the archaeology of Ur. And that's when I realized that reality is very, very different. A modern day equivalent of this change of location that Abraham went through would be like leaving the big city excitement, excitement excuse me, of Los Angeles to go pitch a tent in the Mojave Desert. And ar the archaeology of Ur shows us this reality. Now to understand what this means and all about it, let's look at how Ur was discovered. And this is a great story. Um, there's a very dashing archaeologist, a real Indiana Jones type figure, but he was a real person. And his name was Leonard Woolley. He was the English archaeologist who he excavated Ur from 1922 to 1934. Now he was a fascinating character. He'd been doing 
doing archaeological work prior to World War I in the Middle East, and he did quite a bit of it with his assistant, who was none other than T.E. Lawrence. In other words, Lawrence of Arabia was his buddy that went with him to these archaeological digs. Now, the two of them then worked for British intelligence during World War I, but a ship that Woolley was on was blown up, and he spent the remainder of the war in a POW camp. After the war, he returned to the Middle East and started to work on Ur. And unfortunately, in some ways, this was about the same time that the King Tut excavations were going on in Egypt. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why we don't hear as much about Ur. But here is how the excavation was described in National Geographic. In the 1920s and 30s, British archaeologist Leonard Woolley dug up some 35,000 artifacts from Ur. They included the spectacular remains of a royal cemetery that included more than 2,000 burials and a stunning array of gold helmets, crowns, and jewelry that date to about 2600 BC. Although now situated on a flat and dry plain, Ur was once a bustling port on the Euphrates River, laced with canals and filled with merchant ships, warehouses, and weaving factories, a massive stepped pyramid or ziggurat, rose above the city and still dominates the landscape today. Ur emerged as a settlement more than 6,000 years ago. But, now listen carefully, this is really interesting, but the real heyday came about 2000 BC when Ur dominated southern Mesopotamia after the fall of the Arcadian Empire. The sprawling city was home to more than 60,000 people and included quarters for foreigners as well as large factories producing wool clothes and carpets that were exported abroad. Traders from India and the Persian Gulf crowded the busy wharves and caravans arrived regularly from what is now northern Iraq and Turkey. Now one of the 60,000 people who lived in Ur at that time when this city was bustling and cosmopolitan and incredibly wealthy was a man named Abraham. Now, for a little more about the city, it was this huge city. I show you an aerial picture in the videos. Plus, we also have pictures of the actual homes that were there during Abraham's time. You can actually see remains of houses. But the most spectacular thing is the royal cemeteries. And from them, from the royal tombs, they found all sorts of extraordinary things. There's something called the Standard of Ur. It's a box with detailed images that show a very advanced civilization. We also have gold-headed um, he uh, carvings, and they were really into bulls. These, they did a lot of bulls that were gold and black onyx, and uh, they made beautiful statues and harps and marvelous things. We have some uh, games that they have. This one particular game, it looks like something you can almost see how people would play it today. It, it uh, has little counters and a board, and they have um, 
of course, your requisite golden bowls and alabaster vessels and things like that. And then some beautiful um, golden helmets and gold daggers. And some of the things that I found most fascinating were they have a headdress of someone called Queen Punabi. Um, and she's got this gorgeous headdress and these big earrings. And very similar to what women wear today. But most fascinating to me was the jewelry. It looks exactly like what women wear today. And one of the things also, there's a little shell, that, that a little golden shell, and they said this was for makeup. They would hold their cosmetics in that and then, you know, do their faces up, um, just a lot like we do today. But not everything was beautiful in Ur. And Woolley's journals, and, and you can look at them online, they're just fascinating to read, but uh, they describe the royal tombs. And along with the king and queen, many people and animals were buried. Um, at warriors, attendants, males and females, all richly dressed with gold and weapons. And presumably they were buried with the royalty to serve them in the afterlife. Animals were hitched to carts were also found there. And what struck Woolley as unusual is how there were uh, all of the bodies were a very orderly arrangement and it suggested that they walked into the caves voluntarily and died where they stood. Now each one of them had a little cup in their hands and presumably they were they drank poison and literally just died where they stood. Although some, <laughs> Woolley made note, were found with their heads bashed in. <laughs> and apparently they were literally not willing to drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. So, and I don't want to mock that. I mean, what a tragic, horrible thing. But um, some of them did not go gently into that good night. And we do have, and please check it out online on the video, um, the uh, artist's representation of the many people that were taken down into the tombs to serve the royalty. Now, just a little bit of a summary of the Society of Ur. It was very rich, very sophisticated. It was very urban society. It was a polytheistic religion. There were huge temples that dominated the skyline and the life of the city. But it was a religion based on servitude and fear, where one had duties and obligations. But there's little record of a personal relationship with the deities. They believed in an afterlife, but it was one of dust and darkness, little hope or joy. And this is what Abraham was called out of. Now, not only was he called to a new place, but to a new relationship with God. As I was reading about the religion of Ur and the overwhelming sense of fear and dread in it, I remembered in James 2.23 where it talks about how Abraham was called the friend of God. He's referred to in this way in other places that talk about him also and how different that was about than it would have been for the people who had a relationship with this horrible God that called them to sacrifice themselves for their earthly king. But remember, it isn't just Abraham who has that relationship. Remember, Jesus, when he was about to leave his disciples in John 15, 15, says, I no longer call you servants. Instead, 
I've called you friends. What an extraordinary privilege we have and how different than any other images of a relationship with God in the ancient world and with many religions today that are defined by fear. The factual historical basis for Ur helps us understand Abraham's story. Not only that it really took place in a real place with real people and all of those documents that are in documentation that's important, but it helps us see the significance of him being called God's friend. Now, other historical markers in the Bible help us understand the Bible in additional ways. Now, in the book of Isaiah, this book has a number of historical markers that help us understand and verify prophecy. In Isaiah 1.1, it says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. In Isaiah 6.1, it says, In the year King Uzziah died. And then Isaiah 7.1, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah was king of Judah. You see, the importance of these things, and we oftentimes just read right over them, is Isaiah is continuously giving us specific historical markers. This happened then, this happened then, this happened then. Now, not only in Isaiah, but almost all the prophetic books. Now, the book of Joel is an exception. We don't know exactly when that was written, but we have the prophet will all, almost always say, so-and-so was king at this time. This particular thing happened at this time. And this is really important because we need to be able to date when the prophets gave their prophecy and then we can see when it was fulfilled. Now, where this is incredibly important in Isaiah, and this is one of those things that it's kind of like, you know, I, they don't, you know, this should be talked about a whole lot more because it's an absolutely extraordinary thing. But that is where in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is preaching to the people. He's telling them that if they don't behave, that they are going to go under judgment. They're going to be taken into captivity. And at the same time, he also says to them in Isaiah 44, 28, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and will accomplish all I please. He will say of Jerusalem, Let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. He says then in Isaiah 45:13, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. What is extraordinary about this statement is Isaiah said this. He prophesied that a king named Cyrus, he didn't just say any king, he actually names him. He said Cyrus would rebuild Jerusalem. And Isaiah talked about this in 740 BC, which was approximately 150 years before the Babylonian captivity and long before Cyrus was even born. Jerusalem was finally destroyed in 587. There were several deportations prior to that. And not only was this an astounding proof of prophecy, but 
it was also just an incredible example of God's mercy because he prophesied to the Jews that some would return before the judgment even took place. It all happened exactly as prophesied, and we know that it did because we also have what's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And I have pictures of that on the website on the video. And this was a cuneiform tablet that described um, exactly what I'm telling you, what Isaiah said would happen. It proclaims Cyrus as the legitimate king of Babylon. And then it describes his conquest of Babylon by the Persian, well, by the Persian king Cyrus and his treatment of the nations that he conquered. And one of his edicts was that the captive people, and it wasn't just the Jews, it was it was all of them, but they were part of it, that they be allowed to return to their native lands. But what if this had nothing to do with prophecy? That's what is known as the question of the second Isaiah. Now, 18th century liberal critics questioned if this really happened or not, they're saying that actually, because the book of Isaiah, at least part of it, remember the early part has all of these different things about the year of this, the year of this king, the year of that king. They say, well, maybe all that was really written back then, but this whole stuff about Cyrus, because it's in chapter 44 and 45, this was obviously someone else wrote it. And that person wrote it after the events happened. Now, though this was a popular idea for a time, if you don't believe in a supernatural God, it sounds like a great explanation. But most biblical scholars totally reject that now because there's absolutely no evidence that there were two different writers and two different Isaiahs because there's a similarity of writing styles throughout the book and there's a persistent use of the same wording. And the author, too, is very familiar with Palestine doesn't even mention Babylon. Jewish tradition uniformly ascribes the entire book to one Isaiah and then the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and if you're looking at the video that whole um, picture that I the picture that I showed you earlier of those unwrapped scrolls that was the those were the Isaiah scrolls and the book is one complete unit chapter 39 just it's on the exact same scroll that chapter 40 is and so they form one continuous column of text. There's absolutely no proof in any way, shape, or form that shows that two Isaiahs wrote the book. Now, this is similar to critiques of numerous things in the Old Testament. And I have, again, another chart that illustrates this more. But one of the things that you will read in criticisms of the Old Testament is they will say this very, uh, very frequently that, oh, this prophecy didn't really happen, that actually the prophet, instead of writing when the prophet said the prophet wrote, and they have we have these historical markers, the prophet wrote during the reign of Ahaz or Jehoshaphat or whoever it was. They say, no, no, no. All of these things were actually, and the term they use all the time, they say, these were second temple writings. These were all written in the post-exilic era when all of these things had already happened. Now, if you just read that in one or about one or two books, you think, oh, well, you know, that makes sense. You know, you'd have to believe in a supernatural God. And uh, why not believe that this prophecy was written, you know, after the fact? 
But then, I, um, as I've studied it, I thought, now wait a minute, this is just goofy. And the reason I, I use that term, and I mean it, is if you take all of the writings of the Old Testament, when history, Jewish tradition, um, all of the historical markers, everything says they were written throughout this scattered time of probably a thousand years or so, and you lump you say, no, 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 they weren't written then. They were all written down at this time, just uh, somewhere, you know, 450 BC, uh, somewhere like that. They were all written then. Now, we don't have any proof they were written then. We don't have any manuscript evidence that they were written then. We don't know the names of any of the people that theoretically wrote them then. But because we can't believe that true prophecy existed, we'll say they were all written then. Again, it just is nonsensical. And so it makes much more sense, much easier to understand and believe that the prophetic books and the words that they said were written when the prophets said they were under the certain kings. And then when they happened, that was exactly what God said would happen because our God is outside of history, outside of time. He sees the beginning to the end, and he communicates that to his prophets. Now let's briefly review what we've looked at. We looked at the history of when the Old Testament was written and who wrote it. We had some brief examples of how archaeology and other historical markers show we can trust it. And though these lessons can give us great confidence in the trustworthiness of the Bible, of the Old Testament, one of the best reasons that we have for trusting that it is the Word of God is because Jesus did. He frequently quoted it and he alluded to some of the most controversial statements in it. Let me just read you some of the things that he said throughout the New Testament. Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united to one. Remember Lot's wife, he said in Luke. And then in Matthew 24, he talks about, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the, son, the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he talks about in John how our fathers ate manna in the desert. Um, and then one of the most famous ones is when he talks about in Matthew 12, only an evil, faithless generation will ask for a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give is a sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so I, the Son of Man, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. You see, just in these examples that I've gone over briefly, Jesus validates the creation um, Adam and Eve, Lot's wife who turned into the pillar of salt, the flood of Noah, the manna in the desert, the story about Jonah being swallowed by the great fish. These are things that people say, oh, they couldn't possibly be true. But Jesus believed that they were. He said that they were. And if we trust him, we should also trust 
the book that he trusted, the Old Testament. In conclusion, we can trust that the Old Testament is the Word of God, not only because the Bible tells us it is in Second Peter 1.21, where it says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Second Timothy 3.16 and 17 affirms that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But we also have evidence of archaeology, the preservation of the text, and the proofs of prophecy. And ultimately, the most important thing, Jesus verified the truth of the Old Testament over and over again. Knowing that it is the Word of God, as 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us, we must remember that it is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and helps us do what is right. God protected and preserved this extraordinary book through the centuries for us. So let's read it, study it, and learn all we can from it. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. And if this teaching has been beneficial to you, please consider supporting it with your prayers and gifts. For how to do that, go to www.bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.